Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about some of the latest news affecting general practice, and also having a little look ahead to some of the things we think might be important in early 2024. Coming up, we're talking about what happens next for the quality and outcomes framework after the government launched its consultation on the future of incentive payments in general practice. And we're discussing an ageing GP workforce and what it means for the stability of practices in some parts of England. Our good news story this week is about a Christmas delivery to a practice in Shropshire. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up this week, I thought it'd be worth us talking about the government's consultation on incentive payments in general practice. Yeah, so Emma, you wrote about this this week for GP Online. We've known for a while that this consultation was coming. It was something that was mentioned in the GP contract agreement for 2023-24. So why is the government doing this now? So this is a government consultation on the role of incentive payments in general practice. So we're talking about national incentive frameworks here. So the QOF, the Quality and Outcome Framework, and the Investment and Impact Fund, or the IIF, which is the Performance Related Pay Framework for Primary Care Networks. The consultation's open now and it's running until the 7th of March. So it's, it's far too late for any of the results from this to feed into any contract changes that we're going to see this April. But we sort of already knew that, really. We know that the contract from April next year is likely to be a one-year stopgap contract, which we've talked about on the podcast before, with potentially bigger, more significant changes to come from April 2025. And it seems quite likely we could potentially see a big change to the way financial incentives work at that point. So you asked why the government is doing this now. Well, there's a forward to the consultation from Primary Care Minister Andrea Ledson, which sort of explains that. So she says that the the QOF has helped the government set and achieve ambitious targets, improve the management of long-term conditions and enhance patient experience. But she, she points out we're now in an era of increasing patient demand and patients have more complex care needs. And she says that these payment schemes need to change to meet these changing needs and also new government priorities. What exactly is the consultation looking at? And is it about whether the, the QOF should continue? To a certain extent, yes. I mean, question number one on it there is, do you agree or disagree that incentives like the QOF and IIF should form part of the income for general practice? So that's effectively asking whether it should continue. But that is just one question of 15. The consultation itself, actually, if we're just talking about whether the QOF should carry on, the consultation itself highlights the arguments for and against the QOF and provides links to kind of research on both sides of the argument, although they've given a lot more links to research that highlight the benefits. Um, The government's argument for keeping the QOF is that it enables resources to be allocated towards priority clinical areas. The government says research shows that the introduction of QOF has led to improved quality of care, reduced variation and better patient outcomes. But despite those benefits that the the government highlights, it does acknowledge that the QOF has its limitations. And one of the most obvious arguments against it is that it inevitably takes focus away from other areas of clinical care that aren't incentivised, which means improvement in those areas is likely to be slower. Both the BMA and the RCGP have called for the QOF to be scrapped in the past. I think both organisations would like to see general practice move towards a place where GPs are trusted to provide high quality care with less contractual requirements and bureaucracy. And that really has always been one of the biggest criticisms of QOF from GPs themselves is that it is effectively micromanaging what they do. It adds a layer of bureaucracy and administration to general practice that potentially would otherwise not be there. 
So those are the arguments for and against financial incentives like the Quaff. But as I said, that question is only one of 15 questions that make up the whole consultation. And those other questions do give us a bit of a clue about the government's thinking on all of this. What are some of those other things that the government's asking about? Oh, so those other questions can broadly be grouped into two categories, the types of things people think should be incentivised if these payments continue, and then how those incentives could actually work in future. So as well as asking people generally what they'd like to see incentivised, the government is asking for feedbacks on whether some very specific things should have incentive payments attached to them. And those include continuity, patient experience of access, prescribing, patient choice and reducing pressure on other parts of the NHS. If we look at continuity first, we know that the BMA and RCGP both support a move to increased continuity of care. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast before. The RCGP in the past has talked about incentivising continuity and actually talked about moving money away from the COF to facilitate that. The Labour Party has also said very recently that it would incentivise continuity to bring back the family doctor if it wins the election. So, That is a potentially an area where you might see some support for this general idea in response to the consultation. Although I'm sure that the BMA and RCGP would want a lot more detail on how any incentives for continuity would work before they gave such a move their backing. On access, the government says improving access is one of its top priorities, but it points out that practices which do well in this are not necessarily rewarded. So it's looking for views on whether people think indicators for patients' experience of access based on survey data would help improve performance across the board. Personally, I can't see many GPs backing that idea, though, especially given that access has been used as such a stick to hammer the profession with by the government, the media and others. This would just add fuel to that fire. And then there's incentives to help reduce pressure on other parts of the NHS that's asking for views on whether practices should be rewarded for things like helping to reduce unplanned admissions. I suppose the idea behind that is if people with long term conditions have their condition under control, then they're less likely to end up in A&E or hospital. Some people listening to this who have long memories will um, have a sense of deja vu. They may remember the unplanned admission directed enhanced service almost a decade ago, which incentivised practices on this very thing. It was really very unpopular and an absolute administrative nightmare for practices. And it's also very dubious about whether it actually made any difference. So I, I can't see that any GPs who remember that enhanced service would be keen to resurrect that idea again. There's also a question about whether incentives should be tailored more towards quality of care for patients with multiple long-term conditions. Clearly plays into the idea of changing patient demand and people with more complex needs that I mentioned earlier. And what about how incentives work? What are they trying to find out there? This is actually quite interesting. There's actually some really interesting questions on that. So firstly, the consultation is asking whether relative improvement targets rather than absolute targets would help address health inequalities. So this would potentially mean individualised targets for practices that perhaps recognise their starting point in a particular clinical area or their specific patient populations. So they'd be slightly different targets rather than every practice having to hit the same target. I mean, that's quite an interesting idea because some practices may find it much, much harder to hit targets because they are in a deprived area, for example. I mean, we've certainly seen that with the childhood immunisation targets that were added to the COF quite recently. But then the problem is if they miss those targets, then they miss out on funding. And 
obviously, if they're in a deprived area, that's actually doing nothing to address inequality. In fact, the complete opposite. So that's quite an interesting idea. And it'll be interesting to see what the responses are on that. It's effectively the idea of value added, isn't it? The kind of concept that you talk about in terms of school improvement and academic performance in schools. Yeah, definitely. And then some of the other things that they want to look at, there's a question about whether ICB should have a bigger role in influencing incentive schemes. But I mean, arguably, they already do because many areas have local enhanced services that have performance related pay. There's a question about whether practices should be rewarded for improvements in outcomes at a PCN level. And another question about what types of indicators people think help improve quality of care. You know, so whether clinical coding helps, whether measuring outcomes helps, whether measuring specific activities like annual reviews helps. If the QOF does continue, that question could maybe help establish the type of indicators that are more likely to remain and which ones perhaps might get ditched in the future. And finally, the consultation asks what opportunities there are to simplify and streamline incentive schemes. And this is such an important question, which I think most GPs and practice managers will have a lot to say about. Because if incentive schemes are to remain a part of general practice, then they really need to be less burdensome, given that we have such an acute GP workforce shortage and that demand is at record levels, you know, really significantly over and above the sort of levels of appointments practices were providing back when the QOF was first introduced. You mentioned earlier that the RCGP, BMA and many GPs would like to see the back of QOF, but do you think that's really likely to happen? I guess the real question is, is if the QOF was scrapped, what would happen to that money? Would the government be prepared to just see it moved into core funding? That's obviously what the BMA, RCGP and GPs would want. I'm a bit sceptical about whether the government would want to relinquish that sort of control that they have. It's really clear from the consultation that the government believes the QOF has led to improvements and that ministers see it as a way to target things that they want to happen. On saying that, I think the document does indicate that there's a willingness to overhaul how these payments work. I think there's a recognition that perhaps they've become too complex, too bureaucratic, too much of a burden. And so I think that question around streamlining will be particularly important. So I think the upshot of all this will likely be some quite significant changes to the way incentive payments in general practice work. And some of that could be around significantly scaling them back. But whether it means they will be abandoned altogether, I think that's possibly unlikely. But who knows? We'll have to wait and see. And obviously, whatever happens will be the subject of contract negotiations between the BMA, NHS England and the government. The consultation is open until the 7th of March, and we'll put a link to that in the description if people want to look at it. Obviously, we'll be keeping an eye out in the new year for responses from people like the BMA and the RCGP and others. I think there'll be some really interesting comments from those groups for what they think needs to happen in the future. Moving on, Nick, you've been looking at some of the data around the GP workforce, in particular, the impact an ageing workforce could have on practices sustainability. What exactly did you find? We've talked a lot on the podcast about the GP workforce and the fact that over the past decade or so, general practice has lost around 2000 full time equivalent GPs. We've also looked at things like underdoctored areas, areas where there aren't enough GPs, uh, which means the number of patients each GP is responsible for is really high and potentially unsafe. But with this latest bit of analysis on the GP workforce, we've had a look at how the age of the GP workforce could affect the sustainability of general practice, particularly in areas where there are really high concentrations of older GPs. To provide a bit of context at a national level, 
more than one in five GPs in England, about 22% are aged over 55, and about one in 10 are over 60. So what's the significance of that? The RCGP says that the normal pension age for most GPs approaching retirement is set at 60. So on that basis, one in 10 GPs in the existing workforce are already over retirement age. We also know that many GPs are retiring early, not waiting until they get to 60. So official figures show that two in five GPs who claimed their pension for the first time in 2022 took early retirement. So what this means is that at a time when the GP workforce is shrinking, much of the existing workforce is around retirement age or over it and could choose to stop working really soon. And obviously, areas or individual practices that have large numbers of GPs over 55 or over 60 years old are particularly exposed to that risk. The idea of what's often dramatically referred to as a retirement time bomb. What we found from looking at data down to individual practice level is that more than half of GPs are aged over 60 at just over 600 practices in England. So a tenth of England's GP practices are reliant on a medical workforce, half of which is over retirement age. And clearly what that means for those practices is that if several of their doctors decide to retire or reduce their hours significantly around the same time, they could really struggle to keep going. And some practices are even more at risk. At 5% of England's GP practices, two-thirds of GPs are aged over 60. And at 3% of practices, three quarters of GPs or more are over 60. Professor Camilla Hawthorne, the chair of the RCGP, she told us that these figures demonstrate the need for major investment in general practice and for a renewed drive to boost recruitment and retention of doctors at all stages of their careers. And she said that all GP practices with a large proportion of their doctors approaching retirement age would be worried about a sudden drop off in their workforce. But she said this was a particular concern for smaller practices, particularly in areas that may have difficulty recruiting. And once I'd got that comment, I actually went and did a bit more digging into the stats and found that smaller GP practices actually make up a huge proportion of those heavily reliant on older GPs. So among practices where more than half of GPs are aged 60 or over, 54%, so more than half of them are small. They've got 5,000 patients or fewer. That's far below the average list size of a GP practice in England, which is now close to 10,000. It's a real issue for many practices in England, and it really underscores the need to build the workforce in general practice rapidly. They're quite shocking, some of those statistics, because the thing is, they don't just affect the actual practices with that high proportion of GPs who are over the retirement age. The problem is, is that when one of those practices collapse, because we've seen this before, it can kind of destabilise other practices in the area if they suddenly have to start picking up patients. You also looked at this across England, and we've got a map on the website showing the parts of England where this problem is most acute. What did that show? Yeah, you're absolutely right about the idea of a sort of domino effect. And if a practice does fall over and its list has to be dispersed, and then you know other practices nearby have to take on additional patients in a sort of flood, that can lead to further practices being destabilised. So yeah, it is absolutely an issue. The map that you mentioned, it flags up some real hotspots for practices potentially at risk from an ageing GP workforce. In mid and south Essex ICB, more than a quarter of practices 
are in the position of having 50% or more of their GPs over the age of 60. So that's more than a quarter of practices across an entire integrated care board area, which is massive. And remember, ICBs are roughly three times the size of an average local authority area. And and there's one other, I think, Northwest London ICB that has more than 20% of practices in this situation with a really high dependency on older GPs. I mentioned earlier some of the reporting we've done on under-doctored areas. And in Northwest London's case, it's one of a few areas where there's a high number of practices at risk because of an aging GP workforce and where there's also already a big shortage of GPs. So it's an under-doctored area. If the retirement time bomb goes off in an area like that, for example, it'll deepen existing inequality in terms of access to general practice and to GPs in particular. I should also mention here that one of the features of our GP Insight tool is that it shows what proportion of GPs are aged over 55 in each ICB across England. So in some areas, as many as a third of GPs are aged over 55. Um, And again, this just shows how urgent it is for NHS England's workforce plan to bear fruit because many of our existing GP workforce may choose not to hang around for a lot longer. But yeah, I mean, I'd encourage anyone who wants to go and find out a bit more about the the spread of older GPs across the country to go and have a look at the information that we've published through GP Insight. Interestingly, I mean, we also were looking at practice nurses recently on GP Online, and there's a bit of a retirement time bomb heading our way on that front as well, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think one GP we spoke to said that the situation is potentially more acute still with practice nurses than it is with GPs. And as we said, I mean, some of the statistics for GPs were fairly shocking. Yeah, we've looked recently on GP Online at the practice nursing workforce and the extent to which that's another risk factor for for general practice because of its age. And what we found is that about a third of practice nursing staff are over 55 and that in some areas, such as Surrey Heartlands ICB, which I think had the sort of highest proportion of of nurses aged over 55, this rises as high as 44% of the total workforce. So it's 44% of practice nursing staff in that particular ICB are over 55 And one medical secretary from an LMC told us that the situation was beyond worrying. He said that general practice is absolutely reliant on practice nurses and that unless there's more active planning to replace it, then general practice will really struggle. And again, there's more about that on our website on GP Online. Yeah, Nick mentioned there are GP Insight tools. Subscribers to GP Online can access all of the data in that tool, which shows information on a range of measures about the GP workforce at integrated care board and primary care network level in interactive tables. You can find more information on gponline.com forward slash GP Insight. We're coming to the end of 2023, and as ever, it's been an eventful year in general practice. We thought it might be quite a good idea to have a bit of a look ahead up to what we're likely to be writing about in the new year and covering on GP Online in 2024. Nick, obviously, the update to the contract is probably going to be one of the key things we'll be looking out for in the early months of next year, isn't it? That's right. Sometimes contract negotiations rumble on well into the next financial year, so even beyond April. But if all goes to plan, a deal for 2024 25 should be on the table by February or early March at the latest. What we know about the negotiations for next year's GP contract is, as we've talked about previously, and you've just mentioned just now, that this is going to be a stepping stone, a one-year deal that probably won't see massive change from the status quo. 
Uh, and that's partly because general practice is coming to the end of a five-year contract package that started in 2019, and probably partly because we have a government also coming to the end of its term in office, and at the same time, the NHS is under significant financial pressure and doesn't have a lot of extra funding to do deals with. The BMA is currently surveying GPs about what they want from the contract, and that survey will close at the end of January. That could feed to an extent into the talks on next year's contract. I mean, you mentioned the other survey that's going on at the moment, the government one around the QOF and other aspects, and that's unlikely to feed into the negotiations for the 2024-25 contract because it doesn't close until March. But a lot of the same topics are involved, continuity, some of those issues. Some of the red lines for the BMA GP committee around the contract will be real efforts to reduce workload through cutting bureaucracy, making things like the QOF and other targets more flexible and higher trust. That was something you touched on earlier. Things like pushing for the right to use the huge pot of additional roles reimbursement scheme or ARRS cash to recruit GPs as well as other staff. The GP committee has also said that it'll demand an uplift to cover rising practice expenses, which have gone up because of rising costs of heating and lighting and because of things like sharp increases in the minimum wage, which went up this year by close to 10 percent and is going to do much the same again from from April 2024. And one factor that makes this year different from previous ones is that LMCs have voted for a ballot on whatever deal the BMA can negotiate with the government in NHS England for next year. So early next year, the profession should have a chance to vote on the deal that the government and BMA can put together. And the outcome of that vote could shape 2024 for general practice. Will it be a year in which GPs vote through a deal that offers the concessions they want around workload and the funding increase they need? Or could it be a year in which the profession joins other branches of medicine in uh, in taking some form of industrial action? And, and those first few months of the year then, uh, I mean, are going to be really critical for general practice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of those contract negotiations, isn't it? There's a number of other big stories that will be happening in 2024 as well that we'll be keeping an eye on. Obviously, there's going to be a general election at some point. We obviously don't know when that will be. Most of the pundits seem to be suggesting the second half of 2024, but who knows? It could be earlier. Clearly, the NHS is going to be front and centre in that election. It's generally an important issue for voters. But given the current situation in the health service with record waiting lists, I think more so than ever, it looks like the NHS, along with the cost of living crisis, is going to be a key issue. And there's also what's happening with the strikes. We'll be getting the results of the BMA ballot on whether consultants will accept the pay deal that they've been offered. And this week, the BMA has also agreed to put an offer for specialist and associate specialist doctors or SAS doctors that would overhaul pay scales to a vote by members. If they reject that deal, they would be going on strike. Junior doctors in Wales have also set to walk out in January after pay talks there broke down. And we know that juniors in England will be staging their longest strike yet of six days straight after the Christmas break in the new year. So industrial action is still going to be a key issue for the NHS that will impact on general practice in one way or another in the new year, I think. The other thing I think that's 
worth keeping an eye out for as well. We've talked about physicians associates on the podcast before and earlier this month, the government laid legislation to enable the GMC to regulate physician associates and anaesthesia associates. And clearly work will be progressing on that over next year. We've heard this week that the GMC has listened to feedback and concerns from doctors on one aspect of this and that registration numbers for physicians associate will now be different to those from doctors. So they'll be registered under a seven digit number with an alphabetical prefix apparently. But there is still a lot of concern around how PA roles are being used from some, not least from the BMA. So I think that's an issue that's going to continue to come up in the new year. It's also possible, I suppose, that we could start to see some new guidance on supervision and and role definitions, potentially setting out how PAs can work effectively in general practice. And I think that's something that, that GPs and PAs themselves would perhaps welcome. Before we go, we've just got time for our regular good news slot. And this week, we've got a lovely Christmas story. Staff at Bishop's Castle Medical Practice in Shropshire turned up to work earlier this month to find a Christmas tree decorated with thank you notes as opposed to baubles have been left on their doorstep. The idea for the tree came from the practice's patient participation group. And since it was left there, thank you messages and messages of support have continued to come into the practice and more than doubled. The tree, which has had pride of place outside the practice for the past couple of weeks, was hugely appreciated by the practice team and left one member of staff in tears. GP partner Dr Tom Davis said it showed the strong connection the practice had with its patients. So that's a lovely Christmas note to leave things on. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Nick and thank you so much for listening. This is our last episode before Christmas, so I'd just like to wish all of our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And thank you for all your support this year. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. If you're enjoying the podcast, do think about giving us a rating or a review, preferably a nice one. Nick and I will be back in the new year, but we've got a really good highlights package of some of our best interviews from 2023 next week. So keep an eye out for that. And don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. 